Lord, as we close up the books of 2017 and turn over a page and go into 2018, I pray that this Christmas time would be life-transforming for each and every one of us. That it would be a year of personal revival and personal mission that Isaiah and John speak of for each and every one of us. That you would take now our minds, think through them. Take my lips, I pray, and speak through them. Take our wills, and if necessary, break them. Bend them to your will. And take each and every one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, if life were part of the Food Network, and if Christmas were a flavor, or uh, if the Christian life were to be ascribed as a flavor, I would suggest that the flavor would be joy. Christmas's message of joy was dispensed in one delicious phrase by the angel at the birth of Jesus. I bring you good news of a great joy which will be for all the people. That's significant for us, ladies and gentlemen, because you know at times life stinks, right? As a teenager, as a typical teenager, you know, if you are a teenager, hang with me, all right? Um, yeah, when life was hard, I would close the door of my room, put on my headset, which was connected to my stereo, and I could do music therapy through ZZ Top, Foreigner, Merle Haggard, and John Denver. <laughs> but I learned, as you will learn, and most of us have learned, that is unsustained happiness. Doesn't work. So we ultimately start to face a choice to deal with this life as a messed up place that it is at times. We can either turn to ourselves, and therefore you're turning to your work, your relationships, your, uh, your, your parenting, your substances, or you turn to God. And what God offers us is good news of a great joy. And in this world, that's huge. We miss it at Christmas time so often, and the lectionary says, no, don't miss this. When real people living real lives with real joy, it's living proof that God saves sinners. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great 20th century preacher in London, explains it this way about the, the power of a joyful church. He says, as we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil, with all its difficulties and sadness, nothing is more important than that we who call ourselves Christian and who claim the name of Christ should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution. Here is the answer. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart, people characterized by fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. As 
That's one of the marks of the early Christian was their joy in God as they lived in such a harsh world. I mean, just consider the early Christians in the city of Rome. Did you know archaeologists would tell us as they go on archaeological digs in Rome that the city was constantly, as they could tell by the, the crumblings of the buildings, that the city was constantly filled with the noise of buildings collapsing or being torn down to prevent collapsing. And the tenants of an apartment lived in constant expectation that this building might fall at any time. That's what the Roman Christians had to deal with. Because if you lived in Rome, you lived in an apartment. That was the setting in which Roman Christians raised their children. We think the classical world was one big toga party. (laughs) It was a mess. It was harsh. And at nightfall, Rome was the most dark. There was no medical care like we know it. There were no inoculations for children. There were no pensions or 401ks for older people. There was no air conditioning, no refrigeration. But the early Christians living out this faith in their day stood out because God gave them a gift beyond this world. Overflowing acceptance through faith in Jesus Christ upon the cross. God's presence in their hearts. Practical wisdom from Monday morning as I go back to work in my daily life. An endless enjoyment of Him in heaven. Isn't that enough to make people happy? The early church thought so. Now, I want to qualify that. Telling people to be happy isn't the solution and it won't work because that's simply annoying you know don't worry be happy nobody likes that song all right but the gospel doesn't do that it gives us hope beyond everything that beats us down in our daily lives the apostle peter called it in first peter verse first chapter verse eight it's a joy inexpressible and filled with glory That's Christ's gift to the world today. And that's the message of Christmas. God's mission is to, Isaiah says in beginning of 61, is to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to comfort all who mourn and anoint them with gladness so that the Lord may be glorified. And he made us partners with him in that mission. So this morning, we will look on the seventh day of Christmas at the 61st chapter of Isaiah and look at these words because they have a basic understanding for us that will enable us to join the Messiah in his world-renewing mission as he renews us. I invite you to open up with me to Isaiah chapter 61. If you're visiting with us, you will find it in the back of the bulletin. If you're not visiting with us or you're a member of Christ Church, let's make this the year of the Bible, shall we? Bring your Bible. All right, this is what we do. We're Anglicans. And what we learn in this world-renewing mission, both personally and for our world, is that the Anointed One has a liberating mission for us and for the world. That 
God's people have shame replaced with honor, verses 4 through 7. And that the Lord's commitment to his people is an everlasting covenant, verses 8 and 9. We're just doing verses 1 through 9. We're not doing the whole reading because those themes are repeated throughout chapter 61 going into 62, verse 5. All right. The anointed one's liberating mission, verses 1 through 3. God's people having shame replaced with honor, verses 4 through 7. And the Lord's commitment to his people in an everlasting covenant. For Isaiah, the Babe Ruth of prophets, wants to inspire in us such an admiration for our Messiah, whom we know is Jesus, that we gladly exert ourselves for his cause in our day. 2018 will be a a year in that mission for each and every one of us. So let's look at that, shall we? Let's look at first, we see in this passage the anointed one and his liberating mission in verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who are mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. These three verses in the Hebrew are all one verse. uh, Because Jesus was given the greatest anointing of the Spirit in human history to the human race for one reason, to bring good news to the poor. Jesus himself defined his mission in this way in John chapter 3, verse 17. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what's going on here in Isaiah is that our Messiah announces with all that, that it is means for him to save us. He defines his ministry as helping people in trouble. Helping people who are in bondage. Helping people whose hearts are broken. And who among us has never had their heart broken in some way, shape, or form? Who among us has not been devastated by at times feeling forsaken? But Jesus came with a message different from what our emotions tell us. Because our emotions will tell us God's done with us. God's against us. We've exhausted our possibilities. Our life is a waste. So why not just settle into mediocrity and just make the best of it? And we live in such an age of despair, my friends. We truly do. But as Ray Ortland of Emmanuel Presbyterian says... In our day here in suburban America, it's a smiling despair. Nobody hides their problems better than suburbanites. We smile. We wear a mask. And he describes it as, it's a despair softened by consumer convenience driving through life for a happy meal along the way. Isn't that great? That's what we do. And we see it in here and 
Avon Lake and Bay and Avon, Sheffield Lake across the West Shore and into the city of Cleveland as well. And Jesus says, I came to bear your guilty despair far away and to replace it with a joy inexpressible, filled with glory. And he does it single-handedly. How does he do it? He does it through his spirit, and he does it through his word. That's all he needs to remake the whole world new, beginning with you and me. How does he do it? By preaching or proclaiming. Again, verse 1 to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. The NIV translate that to preach the good news. What's the good news? The gospel. It's the Christmas announces that Jesus Christ has won the victory upon the cross over everything that's against us. If you're committed if you've committed what you think is the unpardonable sin, if you're broken by your failures, if you fear that life is over, Jesus announces to you a life that is so new that if you understand what he's saying, you'll have difficulty believing it can be yours. Back in the Old Testament, God was already hinting at it. He established an institution called the Year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. One year will go through Leviticus. You've got to be careful with Leviticus. It can be really boring, but <laughs> it's also really exciting. Can you imagine if we had a Year of Jubilee in our culture? Every 50 years, Israel is to take the whole year off. I proclaim starting tomorrow, everybody has the next 365 days off of work. Huh? All your debts are canceled. All your family's original property is now returned back to you. Get my house in Virginia back. I want that house, man. It's Williamsburg Colonial on a full acre in Fairfax. It's amazing. To proclaim liberty throughout the land, Leviticus 25.10. That was, and that was everyone's job all year long, to be a blessing. That's your job, is to be a blessing to one another and your neighbors. That's all we needed to do. And Isaiah is saying that the Messiah brings that liberation to its full realization through the gospel. The cross cancels all our debts, ladies and gentlemen. God says we're free to leave the past behind and move on with joyful belief. That's the mission of Jesus Christ into your life. And as we continue to celebrate the seventh day of Christmas, will you welcome that message anew into your heart this morning? As we go into 2018. Jesus so identified with this passage that in Luke chapter 4, he's asked to read the text. This is the text he read. And he, to proclaim the liberty of the captives and the opening of, of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he closes the scroll and he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's history in the making. 
all the tangles of sin complicating our lives since the fall of Adam, Jesus at that moment began to loosen for you and me. And he continues to free people today through the preaching of the good news. Yes, through Sunday sermons, but through the way we talk to people and proclaim it throughout our week as well. But every Christian preacher this morning ought to say, be able to say at least, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And when it's so, then Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled in your hearing. But, you know, that that passage continues in verse 2, doesn't it? Okay. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Ooh. You know, why does Messiah say that? Well, the year of the Lord's favor is the jubilee of gospel freedom, and we're in that era now. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, he didn't keep reading it. He closed it up in 2a and said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why doesn't he continue to do so? Well, this is one of those in-between passages. We live in the already and the not yet. The year of the Lord's favor is this gospel freedom, and we're living here now, and it's going forward. One of, one of my selfish traditions that I do as we approach Christmas is I go all by myself on December 22nd, 23rd, or 24th, and I wake up the West Side Market. When it opens, I'm there. And I buy my Delmonico or New York strip steaks for Christmas Day dinner down at the West Side Market. And as I turn that corner on I-90, the sun's nowhere, you know, sun comes up at 9 o'clock in December, it feels like, right? It's dark! And you see the city, and it looks so pretty and beautiful. And, and, and as it spread out before me, by faith, I see Jesus Christ loving, spreading his love and grace across the city that I've come to love. And I pray, Lord, bless this city. Flourish this city. And the Bible says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6. But we wonder, what's the day of vengeance of our God? Well, that's kind of the point. Does Jesus not fulfill all these prophecies? Yes, he does fulfill them all, but he doesn't fulfill them all at the same time. At his first coming, he inaugurated the year of the Lord's favor in Luke chapter 4. And at his second coming, he'll bring in the day of vengeance of our God when the door of grace will shut forever. We spoke about that on the first Sunday of Advent, remember? There's a gap in between 2A and 2B, and that's where we live right now. It's as if Isaiah looks into the future and sees two mountain peaks far off, but you can't tell the distance between those two mountains, can you? So we don't know how long we have until the day of vengeance of our God, but as long as this season of favor lasts, the Messiah continues to use the proclaiming of his gospel, the preaching of his gospel, to take away the ashes of mourning that our dark thoughts heap on our heads and to pour upon us the oil of gladness, Isaiah says. So what difference does this make? Well, look at verse 3. God's people, 
when they look at us, will call us oaks of righteousness. The gospel builds strong Christians, deep roots. You're an oak. You're not a bush, all right? Stop acting like it. You're an oak of righteousness because you're clothed with his righteousness. See who you are in Christ. Why? That the Lord may be glorified. This is the mission of Jesus Christ into the world, and he wants us, you and me, to join him in it. Why? Because we're a people that our shame has been replaced with honor. Verse 4. This is the second point. That they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. See, long-standing ruins that are in our lives, our personalities, our our homes and our backgrounds and the mess of our upbringing for some of us. God promises to give back every sin that has ruined us. And he does such things through his people to others. The mourners of verse 3 become the repair experts of verse 4. Isaiah uses this language of rebuilding because the Jewish people literally had rebuilt Jerusalem after they'd come back from the exile. But that was only a token of a deeper restoration for us all. Each and every one of us need this. We've seen devastation in our lives. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, all the violence that was going on in Northern Ireland. My whole life we've seen the conflict in the Middle East. And we've seen the decline of the American family and and the hidden sin of the suburbs. Because this is what sin does. It destroys. And sin creates victims who feel entitled to retaliate. Who do retaliate, which creates more sin, which creates more victims. And then they retaliate. And they go on and on and on. It doesn't end. Isn't it interesting that in all the history of all the wars ever, nobody stands up and says, hello, I'm firing the first shot. You know, I'm going to pick this fight. This war is all my fault. Right? No, every war is a counterstrike. All shots are return fire, redressing a perceived propaganda wrong if necessary. Is that convincing? No. Wars are just wars. But where grievances and sin is concerned, every one of us has a long memory and a short fuse. Every person, every home, every culture has ancient ruins creating more ruins. And who has ever stopped it? Bob Dylan has a song where he sings, broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts, streets are filled with broken hearts, broken words never meant to be spoken, everything is broken. Ever since Adam fell, sin has been spreading a culture of death. And we'll never understand ourselves and our surroundings without that background. My friends, this world is not normal. Right? We are not normal. Everything is broken. 
So here is a radical proposal. We need a savior. And the only person in the history of the human race who qualifies to be that savior is Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas. He came to recreate for us a culture of life. And that's Isaiah's point in verse 4. Is that a gospel-liberated people themselves become a creative force for restoration in their neighborhoods. That's our mission. And God says in verse 5 and 6 that this mission is heroic. It will be perceived as heroic. Verse 7, that this mission is joyful and with a joy that will last forever. And this mission of Jesus and we, his church, will be rebuilding ruins of people's lives. Where every noble human salvation is absolutely falling into ruins, we're there to help restore it. How can we, and why can we be confident of that mission that he gives us? Well, finally, as a third point, we can be confident because the Lord's commitment is an everlasting commitment and expressed in an everlasting covenant. Verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring that the Lord has blessed. See, God commits himself to us, his people. Remember that the word justice used here is more than just a legal term. It means the way human life and human society is supposed to be. And God loves patterns of human wholeness. And he loves to see his kingdom coming and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he hates the robbery and the wrong of the world today, distorting what he meant us to be. This is who God is. He loves what is right and he hates what is wrong with all the intensity of his divine being. It's unthinkable that God would fail to keep his covenant. And so my friends, as we celebrate the seventh day of Christmas, going into the year of our Lord 2018, I would encourage you to invest yourself in the new world God is building. You can risk it. You can seek first his kingdom and his righteousness above your own. Because he isn't just recruiting you. He's promising to bless you as you do it. See, we are, we're the watchmen on the walls. We're the standing guard on the city wall, keeping our eyes peeled for what God is doing in our world today. And so we are to encourage one another, wherever we are, about these momentous acts that he's already done. And we're also people who have a, a direct pipeline to God. In Christ, he hears our prayers. And in fact, our prayers are to give God no rest until the church astonishes the world. Okay? If we're not astonishing, we're not praying. If people are amazed at the work Christ has done in our lives, we're not praying enough. Okay, Jonathan Edwards wrote a famous appeal to the Christians of his day 
to unite in prayer for revival, and it happened. He wrote these words, It is very apparent from the word of God that he often tries the faith and patience of his people. (laughs) When they are crying to him for some great and important mercy, by withholding the mercy sought for a season, and not only so, but at first he may cause an increase of dark appearances. And yet he, without fail, at last prospers those who continue urgently in prayer with all perseverance and will not let him go except he blesses. Otto Hallesby was a Norwegian theologian who resisted the Nazis in World War II and paid for it by spending the war in a concentration camp. He understood what it meant to pray all the way through until God answers, and he describes prayer for God's people as like mining. He says, prayer is like boring holes deep into the rock of human hearts. It's work. It tries our patience. We can't see results. But in God's time, he places the dynamite and lights the fuse, and the rocks crumble. God has called us to give him no rest until he makes a revived church the praise of the earth. God, as it were, overcome by his people's prayers. We see that in the scripture. Joseph wrestling with God, and God said to him, You have striven with God and men and have prevailed. Genesis 32. Jesus compared prayer to a man pounding on his neighbor's door late at night until, quote, Because of his impudence, the neighbor gets up and helps him. The Apostle James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. My friends, God has positioned each and every one of us in this generation to pray down his power upon the ministry of the gospel across the West Shore and not quit until the whole West Shore and the world is praising God. Bill Bright, the founder of the campus ministry crew, died in 2003, and he'd been diagnosed with cancer in 2000. And and here are a few excerpts from a Christianity Today interview that he had given. The, The writer asked him, Bill, what's your condition? And he says, well, I've lost 60% of my lung capacity, and it keeps going down. One day I'll breathe breathe my last, but that's fine. I can say I've lived a pretty exciting life. But since it was announced to me that there's no cure for the disease, I've entered into a different relationship and a more wonderful intimacy with the Lord. James says to rejoice when you're having difficulties. Paul speaks of rejoicing when you suffer. I now know the reality of what they're saying. So your health is declining? Yeah, but my spirit is soaring. Do you feel that you've completed the mission for which you were put on this earth? He kind of laughed and said, God doesn't need Bill Bright any more than he needs a twig on a tree. He created us in his image and he loves us, but he can raise up sticks and stones to worship him. So it's not as though my departure is going to leave very big a hole. So what are your parting words to the church and the fellow believers? Bright responded, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Peace I leave to you. 
So my word to believers would be, let us awaken out of our Laodicean spirit and return to our first love as the church of Ephesus in Revelation was admonished to do. And let us share this most joyful news with everybody on the planet. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ has a liberating mission for each and every one of us to be fulfilled in the ways he's called us to fulfill it. It's not the same for any of us. We all have individual calls. And in Jesus Christ, you have a great honor and he's taken away your shame. And it's an everlasting covenant. It will never leave you or forsake you. And so therefore, because of that, Christmas continues. God is with us. And as we enter into 2018, no matter your age, no matter your race, no matter your bank account balance or the square footage of your home, God has come. God is with us. And so may this year be one of great growth personally and great growth for us corporately as we join God in this mission, which is an everlasting mission. Rebuilding, restoring, and glorifying that we would be a people of a great joy for all people. Merry Christmas, my friends, and may this be a most blessed new year for you and yours and forever in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for this great word that Isaiah gives us of personal revival and personal mission. I pray, Lord, that we would go deeper in you this year and that we would be part of the liberating mission that you're doing in lives across the West Shore and that we would join you in this great ministry of honoring those who have placed their trust in Christ, recovering the shame and recognizing that it's a commitment that's an everlasting commitment and covenant founded in Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we do so, this joyful news will be expressed in and through us, through the Word and the Holy Spirit, and we would pray for such revival personally and corporately throughout this year, and we would look back and see the good work you've done in each and every one of us and in this community. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.